Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to God's Word this morning. Because God's Word is truth. It is the rock we have to stand on in all things. And we are turning this morning to the Gospel of Mark, to the end of chapter 4. And in God's providence, our faithful Father has us in this story in our series on Mark this week as a church. And this passage brings us deep comfort in the face of what we are in front of as a church, but also in whatever the Lord has you individually facing as well. And this passage is not a quick line. It's not a side comment. This passage is a vivid picture that brings home to us the truth and the comfort that we need. Because from every angle and with a crescendo of clarity, this passage demonstrates that the circumstances around us may toss and may rage But the one thing that makes all the difference is who is in the boat. So would you read with me Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. This is God's Word. On that day when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, how we thank you for your word and your care for us through it. Be with us by your Holy Spirit this morning. Apply these words to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now fear and anxiety are responses in us to our limits as we face danger and loss. And we are reminded that we are not in control and have little ability to change the situations we find ourselves in. And at some level, fear is something that every single one of us knows, whether it's the five-year-old who's afraid of the dark or the 35-year-old who finds his job is suddenly at stake or the 65-year-old facing a life-altering medical diagnosis. We all have faced fear in some way. And so we know something of what these disciples must have felt as they braced themselves in their boats in the midst of this storm that was too big for them. We also know something of the disciples' response to their fear, their feeling of panic the adrenaline of the moment as they poured out their efforts to save themselves. They're crying out in despair to the Lord. 
But there is one thing that apparently the disciples did not know, or at least did not fully recognize yet. And it's the one thing that makes all the difference. The one thing that they did not fully recognize is who they had with them in their boat. And that is the main point of this passage, who this is, this Jesus who is with them. I want to begin by looking at verses 35 to 38 where we see the disciples' fear described. Jesus, remember, has been teaching parables by the shore of the lake all day long. Apparently the crowds are still lined up there on the shore. They're still listening. But evening has now come. And so Jesus suggests to his disciples that they row to the other side of the lake. We're told that they took Jesus just as he was. That is, they didn't disembark and dismiss the crowds. They didn't uh, make a pit stop on the way. He was sitting in the boat teaching. He turned to suggest they row across the lake, and they turned around right there and sailed away as they were. Now, the trip from the area around Capernaum, where Jesus has been, to the Gerasenes, where we'll find him in the next episode, was probably about a two-hour boat trip. And you can imagine that this group would have been fairly relaxed as they made their way across the sea, perhaps joking or reflecting on the day. After all, a good percentage of those in the boat were fishermen. They'd been on this lake all their life. They knew it right side up and upside down. And yet part of the way across, a sudden windstorm arose, whipping up the waves that swamped them and threatened to sink their boat. Even today, the Sea of Galilee is known for sudden storms. These storms are called sharks by modern fishermen, and they particularly arrive in the early evenings, caused because Mount Hermon is a high peak, which is right next to the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level, and so the cool air in the evening coming across the mountain clashes with the warm air rising from the sea and produces these sudden violent storms. Surely the fishermen had seen storms in the early evening before, and yet this one appears to have borne down on them with particular force. And while they struggled, they grew increasingly desperate. At one point, one of them looked over and thought, well, what's Jesus doing in the middle of this storm? And there he is asleep on the cushion. I love that detail. Mark is the only one who records that detail, probably because this is Peter's eyewitness account and he was there. It says almost as if Jesus has pulled up his mat for a beauty rest after a long day of teaching and continues to rest there without concern for the storm that is tossing the boat. But at last, the disciples fear that death is bearing down on them. And remember, these are fishermen. These aren't some landlubbers spooked by a few little waves. These are fishermen who fear for their life. And they cry out, Teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. Now, the disciples here in this line have fallen into a trap. It's a trap, though, that we often fall into in the face of fear and anguish too. Because you see that their immediate response is not, "Um, Jesus, we need help here. Their key response is not, Jesus, um, we're waiting to see what you're going to do. Their first response is to accuse Jesus of not caring for them. They look at Jesus and think, Jesus, why aren't you panicking too? Why aren't you doing something about it? And since you're not doing anything, you must not care about us. And that's the jump from the observation that Jesus is not doing what they would do or they wish he was doing to the conclusion that therefore he does not 
care for them. And this is often our response to threats and dangers, to anxieties and losses as well. We think, God, if I were in your shoes, I'd be doing things differently. God, if I were in charge, I know what I'd do and you're not doing it. And therefore, I have reason to accuse you. But Scripture repeatedly reminds us that this is a false accusation. Scripture reminds us again and again of the character of God. It reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we can cast all of our cares, that is all of our anxieties, our fears, our uncertainties, our griefs, we can cast all of our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. That was spoken by Peter, who was in the boat, by the way. Knowing Peter, maybe he was even the one shouting this question. Scripture reminds us in Romans 8.31 that if God did not spare his own son for us, but gave himself up to death for our salvation, how will he not also give us what is good? And so Scripture reminds us over and over that God does care for us, and he has proven it time and time again and definitively on the cross of Christ. And so we are faced with fear and grief and loss. We can respond in one of two ways. We can either decide that fear and loss must mean that God either doesn't exist or is not worth our trust, or we can decide that we are hurting and we do not understand, but God does have a purpose and he can be trusted. We have those options. Now, if the Bible had ignored fear and grief and pain and loss, if the the Bible painted this idea that life, if we trust in Jesus, would be perfectly rosy and well, perhaps we might doubt God and his character in the face of evil. But Scripture does not do that. Scripture addresses evil and fear and loss routinely. And it shows us that we will go through them in this life, but it shows us again and again God's care for us. If Scripture, if Scripture had not shown us God's character, if it had never shown us how God responds to evil and suffering, maybe we might doubt his character. But Scripture does not do that. It shows us again and again how he cares for his people in loss, in fear, in anxiety, going even to the extent of sending his son to the cross to give us the greatest salvation and comfort and rescue we could imagine. And so given what Scripture says, we know that the disciples' reaction and sometimes our instinctual reaction that, God, if you've allowed this to happen, you must not care, we know that is the one answer we can rule out for sure. We know God's character. We know He cares. And so even though that is often a reaction, it is the one thing we can be sure is not true. But this is the disciples in their fear But having seen this, I want to look next at Jesus' presence in the boat in verses 39 and 40. Jesus awoke at the disciples' cries, and his first and immediate response was the one thing that surely his disciples could not have expected. The first thing he does is get up and talk to the wind. Now, this is one of those things that perhaps we might do as a joke. We might say, hey, wind, would you just calm down for me? And, and, and we say those things and we don't expect anything to happen. But Jesus doesn't speak in a joking manner. He gets up and speaks with authority. He rebukes the wind. In fact, this is the same word that is used repeatedly for Jesus' response to demons. He rebukes the demons and they flee Here he rebukes the storm. 
and it quiets down immediately. And when confronted with powers far beyond the human ability, demons, many hurricanes, Jesus rebukes them, commanding them to be still and think how it must have startled the disciples when the wind and the waves actually listened and obeyed. See, the waves listened to Jesus. And this was outside of the disciples' frame of reference. So far, Jesus had done some amazing things. He had healed sick people, yes. But the prophets had done that. That was within the realm of expectation for God's people. He had spoken with authority, but that was within their realm of experience. But speak to a storm with a word of command and have it listened to him? Not even Moses or Elijah had done that. They had prayed to God and God had answered, but they had not spoken themselves with the word of command and rebuke. And so Jesus demonstrates here that this power and authority that he has can only be divine. This is the voice of the Creator. This is the voice of the Almighty One, God the Lord. This is God in His infinite power, infinite in His majesty and dominion, infinite in His authority and His care over all creation. And few things could have demonstrated the extent of that power and authority and control so completely as to stop a violent windstorm in its tracks. And here is the real crux of the story. What Jesus does is a demonstration of who he is. Again, so far in Mark, we've learned that Jesus has come to announce the kingdom of God We've seen him prove his prophetic calling by healing and preaching with authority. We've seen battle lines form between those who follow Jesus and those oppose Jesus. We've seen Jesus emphasize how important it is for people to listen to his words. All those we have seen, all that the disciples had seen. They believed Jesus was sent from God, but they have not yet fully grasped that he is God. And this event is calculated to bring the disciples face to face with the reality that Jesus is God come in the flesh to love and to rescue his people. He is God who has drawn near. And there is no other explanation for such power and authority. And Jesus follows this up with a question. You see the question there in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I don't believe that this is a sharp rebuke from Jesus, but a question to emphasize the lesson he has just taught them. Because the question begs them to answer the question, who is this? It's asking them to affirm the conclusion that his actions apply, imply. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord, come to the earth that I have created. And if I am who I have just demonstrated that I am, and I am with you, if you have faith in that, why are you afraid? Now you see the disciples' response to Jesus in verse 41, and it's a response that brings with it some irony. The disciples, for the first half of this story, were panicked because they thought that their life was over, their boats were sinking. But then all at once they were saved. The storm stopped. The thing that frightened them was taken away. And Jesus asks them, why are you afraid? He's given them every reason not to be afraid. And yet, with the cause for their fear gone and Jesus having spoken to them with comfort, we read in verse 41 that they were more afraid than they were in the first part of the story. It uses the phrase in Greek, 
to characterize the greatest amount of fear. They were filled with great fear as they said to one another, who is this? And this fear is not a sort of tame feeling of respect for Jesus. It's not a nice, wow, Jesus is pretty awesome. No, it is fear of the Lord, a recognition of who God is in all of his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The one thing more fear-inspiring than a storm that would threaten your life is power completely out of your frame of reference to come and stand face to face with God himself. And yet, it is not fear that would cause one to run away in terror. This is, in fact, exactly the response Jesus wanted his disciples to have. That speaking to the waves would reveal to them his divinity. That they might have a new understanding of the level of his power and greatness as God. Because when such power is with you in the boat and is caring for you, then it offers you a solid refuge and one to run to no matter what comes to pass. And this is what we see in the story. We see the disciples' fears meeting this revelation of who Jesus is. They respond in a fear, an awe of his character, but a fear that brings them refuge because he is with them and for them. Now I want to take our remaining time to ask how does all of this comfort us? And I want you to notice three things in this passage that comfort our hearts. The first thing is a seemingly casual and insignificant comment in verse 35. It's been a long day teaching on the shore. Evening is coming on. And there's any number of things Jesus could have said to his disciples. He could have said, let's dismiss the crowds and get some dinner. He could have said, you know, let's just hang out in the boat for a bit and debrief. He could have said, let's just row up a little way and get out and pray. But he didn't say any of those things. He said, let's row across the lake. Now remember, this is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus is the one who knew where Nathanael was sitting under the fig tree without even being there. This is Jesus who knew the thoughts and hearts of men. This is Jesus who knew everything. And do you really think that Jesus did not know that this storm was going to arise in the next hour or so? No. Jesus knew. And it was Jesus who led the disciples into this storm. It was Jesus who by his sovereign goodwill led the disciples into a raging hurricane that threatened to sink them. Had they understood who was in the boat, the first source of infinite comfort for the disciples would have been the reminder that this was Jesus' idea. This was his plan. They are right where he wanted them to be all along. And so are we. And this is exactly what Scripture affirms again and again and again in situation after situation after situation. Joseph was thrown in a pit. He was falsely accused. He was forgotten in prison, seemingly with no hope for decades of his life. But he comes to the end of Genesis and declares that through all of this, it was all God's plan to put him right where he wanted him to be, when he wanted to be there, that he might bring good to his people. Or maybe you think of Acts 4, 28, where the apostles reflect on Jesus' agony and suffering and even his, his death, that God allowed his own son to die. And they say this happened because it was God's hand and God's plan 
that predestined it to take place. Now, I don't know every situation that you are facing today, but let's consider every situation that every one of God's people is facing. Whether it is grief over death, whether it is anxiety and uncertainty about your future, whether it is a conflict that is bearing you down, whether it is fear over a surgery or cancer, whether it is any other storm or high wave that you are facing in life, the first truth that this passage points us to directly is that the Lord has you right where he wants you. Nothing happens outside of his will. He has sovereign and good reasons for every hard thing, every painful thing, every fearful thing he brings us through. And he has demonstrated it again and again and again in his word. And we can trust that still. And that is a great comfort for our hearts. So that is the first truth that comforts us in this passage. The second thing to notice, though, is that Jesus did not just send his disciples into the face of the storm. He didn't say, hey, guys, why don't you row across the lake and I'll wait here and meet you on the other side? No, Jesus went into the storm with them. Jesus was in the boat with them. He was right there as the God who was with them the entire time. He was available to hear their cries of distress. He was there in all of his divine power to speak to the storm and declare, be still. He was there to remind them that they need not fear, but to fix their hearts and faith on him. You know, if you were to do a survey of all of Scripture, you would find that do not fear is one of the most common and repeated commands that Jesus gives in Scripture. But God is a good father. And so he does not just say, don't fear. He always gives a reason for why we shouldn't fear. And the reason that he gives almost every single time in Scripture is the same. It's, I am with you. You think of Abraham in Genesis 15. He has left his family, left his home, gone where he doesn't know where. He had been given promises, but they haven't come true yet. And the Lord draws near to him and says, Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. To Jacob, who has come to the promised land and been told God would care for him there in that land, at the end of his life in Genesis 46, he has to leave and go down to Egypt, this foreign land. And God comes to him and says, Jacob, I am God. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I myself will go down with you. To Joshua, entering the promised land, and remember what happened the last time they came to the edge of the promised land. God's people saw giants. They saw high walls. They saw huge armies that they had no chance. They thought they were terrified, and they fled to Joshua, entering that land. In Joshua 1.9, God says, Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. To Israel, facing exile, in Isaiah 41.10, God says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. We could go on and on. This is repeated again and again throughout Scripture. Christian counselor and teacher Ed Welch comments that fear and anxiety are always our attempt to run away from things that frighten us or overwhelm us. But he says it does us no good to run away from something if we don't know where to run or who to run to. I think of my 
youngest when she realizes that she is upstairs alone, which is her greatest fear. What does she do? She runs downstairs, away from the upstairs. But what if there had been no one downstairs? It would have done no good. What she needs is to know who to run to. And so she runs to Kate or to me or to one of her siblings where there is safety. But rewind the tape for a second. Because if one of us had been upstairs with her, it can be pitch dark and black as night. If I am holding her, she feels no fear and no reason to run away. And so it is in life. We will face storms. We will face grief. We will face fear and anxiety. We will be overwhelmed at times. But when that happens, the key is who will we turn to? And in Scripture, we find that the one we need to turn to, the one who is infinitely almighty in his power and care for his people, was actually right with us all along. He is the God who draws near. And it is his presence that comforts us and carries us through. And that is why Jesus says, if your faith is in me, no matter what storm you are being driven by or face us, I am with you. You do not need to fear. It is Jesus' presence with us that is the second comfort we find from this passage. But third, and finally, I want us to see in this passage the God who watches over us and delivers his people. And maybe the question that I want to ask could best be asked this way. Why does Jesus so often wait until things seem hopeless before he brings his salvation? You know, Jesus could have kept this storm from happening at all. And Jesus does do this at times for us. He saves us from disasters we don't even know he has saved us from. Jesus could have calmed the waves as soon as they started getting a bit ominous. And certainly he does do that at times. But here, as often, he does not do either of those things. He waits until the last moment, till the 11th hour, when all hope appeared to be lost and the disciples were beyond themselves. And then in that moment... He came and he delivered them. And this seems to be a bit of a habit of God's, allowing us to come completely to the brink of despair, to the point where we have no ability or hope. And then he saves us. And he does it in a way that magnifies his glory and reminds us of our complete dependence upon him. Maybe you think of Abraham, who was promised a baby as his hope. And yet, decades after the promise, when he's 99 years old, he hadn't received it. It's not until then, when his wife couldn't have any more children, that the Lord rescued him and brought the promise at the last moment. Maybe you think of the Israelites who are saved from Egypt after their labor is doubled and they are beaten and Pharaoh refused to let them go and then descends upon them with an army and traps them against the Red Sea. When all hope is lost, then the Lord brings deliverance. Or or maybe you think of... The Apostle Peter, who was put in prison and guarded by 16 guards, chained to two of them. And there he waited, but it was on the night before Herod meant to bring him out and execute him that the Lord saved him from prison. And this is so often the way the Lord works, that God takes us through fear, through uncertainty and anxiety, even pain and loss, and just when hope in our own strength wanes 
He acts and delivers and magnifies his name and brings us into our comfort and our refuge in him. But that does also beg a question, doesn't it? What happens when he doesn't deliver? What happens when the rescue doesn't arrive? But again, the Bible gives us the answer. Because that happened in Scripture. Think about Lazarus. This was the question Mary and Martha asked Jesus when he didn't come until after Lazarus died. They said, why didn't you come before he died? And Jesus responds to Mary and Martha and he says that he was glad he was not there for their sake, that they might believe in him. What does he mean when he says that he was glad that he was not there? Well, he knew that he was still sovereignly working out his deliverance even after the last minute. Because as we know, he then came and raised Lazarus from the dead. And we say, well, yes, exactly. Jesus was there to raise Lazarus from the dead, but that doesn't happen anymore now. What about now when he doesn't come to rescue? But don't you see that what Jesus did for Lazarus was only a temporary sign? Bringing him back to life on this earth would only last a few more years. What Jesus was doing in raising him from the dead was showing us, was giving us the promise and the guarantee that that is what Jesus is going to do eternally and finally and fully for everyone who trusts him. When God did not deliver his own son from death, but let his son go to the cross and shed his blood for us, God was delivering each one of us finally and fully from death. In Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ, we are secure in his hand and no one can snatch us away. And so in Christ, we have already received the full deliverance that we long for. God has already given us the full inheritance of life in him forever. And it is up to God then to decide when he will bring us from this temporary life into that full eternal inheritance. He will do it in his time. But when he does, he has delivered us. In Psalm 34, the psalm opens with promises that the Lord is our keeper and that he will preserve our life. Then later in the psalm, it says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And we think to ourselves, well, how do those two go together? If the Lord would really keep us and never sleeps or slumbers and rescues us, why would we be brokenhearted and crushed? And I think our own life experiences and Lazarus and the widow whose son died and so many others bring us face to face with the answer. That even in the death and fear and loss of this life, God is keeping us. He has delivered us in his son, Jesus Christ. And all of his promises are true. As Ed Welch puts us, he says, Imagine if you could gradually develop the spiritual skill to see beyond the immediate moment and catch a glimpse of the glories to come. The basic outline is this And it is 100% clear. If you have thrown your lot in with Jesus, 
If you have fully put your faith and trust in Jesus, then everything he has is now yours, even the kingdom itself. It would be impossible to ask for anything more. In this life, sorrow remains, yes. Danger and uncertainty remain, yes. Death and tragedy remain, yes. But they are not the last word. And so in this life, we need patience and endurance, yes, but not fear or despair. God has acted. His goodness is certain. He has proven it in his son's death and resurrection. He has given up even his own son for our redemption. His reign is spreading. He guarantees that justice will be done and every tear will be wiped away. And when we belong to Christ, all will end in joy. All that is certain when it is Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, who has loved us and died for us and is with us in our boat. And so may we not give ourselves to fear or despair. May we not be filled with anxious foreboding. May we not grieve as those who are without hope. But may we rest in him and find comfort in the one who is with us and has delivered us. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you and are so thankful that through Christ we can call you our Father. And you invite us to bring every prayer and request before you. And so we bring all the things on our hearts and minds this morning. Death and tragedy, yes. But every fear and uncertainty, every anxiety, every storm that would toss us, we bring to you. And we thank you and we praise you that Jesus is with us in it. And we thank you and we praise you that you have already secured our deliverance and that you are keeping and the keeper of our life and no one can snatch us from your hand. Father, how we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.